Welcome to our series, the book of Deuteronomy, looking back, moving forward, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 to 21, today entitled Reformation, bringing long-lasting godly changes to our society by Reverend Paul Bucknell. This message was given at Open International Fellowship and produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. Continuing on in the series in Deuteronomy 21, we'll be speaking from verses 15 to 21, entitled today, Reformation, Bringing Long-Lasting Godly Changes to Our Society. Particularly, we'll be trying to understand how do we use this book of Deuteronomy in our own lives. Sometimes we are a little afraid. We open up a passage. I said, oh, I don't know how to relate it to my own life. Well, hopefully today as we go through this, that we'll better be able to understand not only the book of Deuteronomy, but how it applies to our life and how we can understand it. I titled this uh, Reformation, but a lot of people ask, well, what's the difference between revival and reformation? Revival is when there's a personal change in one's own heart, desire to know and love God more. And there's that uh, willingness to follow him, whatever he wants. Reformation is actually that long-lasting type of change, that change that takes place because a lot of people have changed and the society has changed around it. I'd like to think about this one example from uh, 1904, the Welsh Revival. The court judges all of a sudden didn't know what to do because there are no more cases coming before him. Because in six months' time, 100 to 150,000 people came to know the Lord in the country of Wales. And this one revival actually had the greatest impact all around the world. Because of it, a lot of missionaries were sent out, a lot of uh, churches and pastors were revived, people were revived. Another thing is that the mine stopped working for a while. And the reason for this was that the miners were used to giving commands to the donkeys uh, to do this or that. But when God changed their lives, they stopped cursing and they stopped having those harsh phrases as they addressed their donkeys. They changed so much that the donkeys didn't no longer respected them as their masters. And so the whole coal mines had to stop. Changes take place in our own lives and it brings about other changes. Now what we really need is actually reformation. Revival is good for the moment, but it doesn't help us in the long term in terms of changing us and helping our children, helping those around us. We look for real changes. The book of Deuteronomy is about those kind of changes, and that's why he makes covenants, agreements with the people to bring them in so that they would actually live in a certain way before them. And this is where we find ourselves here in thinking about the book of Deuteronomy. My own life, as I thought, I have thought about this, I've thought about how the society has deteriorated so much. From 1950, when the church membership was at the peak, old mainline church denominations were, were filled with people, like churches around here, but now they're empty. Back then, Billy Graham would preach, and a lot of people were coming to know the Lord. Great changes were happening. But in the 1960s, as the deterioration started drastically to take place, when people started no longer accepting God's ways and God's truths, and so society began to turn to where now, if you compare it to where it is now, to where it was, you'd say, wow. And even 1950 was not perfect by any means. But if you saw and compared, you'd say, wow, our society has deteriorated so much to the point if I ask you, how, you, how is things going? And you say, oh, pretty good. But usually the answer is reflecting upon your own life. Yeah, I have a job. My family is okay. But in fact, all around us, our society has deteriorated to such a degree that families all around, the marriages are horrible, children don't even get to see their parents. Many, many difficulties are happening in our life. We find changes very difficult, but we're not even aware of how bad our society is. And we're rather con content with it. But God is not content. God is looking for change. So there's heart changes within us. They bring a, a revival, a hope of what God can do in our lives. So lifestyle changes. And then that brings about cultural changes. It works in the negative way with deterioration, but it works with a positive way. In the book of Deuteronomy, God was actually confronting a people. When he came in, he began to change people and the way they think. Our society today thinks more about values than principles principles, those moral laws built into our lives and world. We can't readily see them, but they're all around us and they help us understand how we should live. They're permanent. They're embedded into the world. Values are what a person group feels important to them. 
this is how our society operates today. Values are different than principles for most people. They're, they're temporary, they're relative, important for the moment. But they don't help a person because they go contrary to principles. Values really should match up with the principles that are embedded into the world. Let me give you some dangers of the value. You know, like what happens with gravity, right? Gravity is a principle. We all know about that physical principle because we get near the cliff. We know what will happen. But values are the same way. They, they're very dangerous. They can differ from principles. If they differ, they'll bring eventual disaster. Values are built around individual consensus or opinion. What I feel is important. They're easily adoptable because you be agreeable with those around you. Values tend to deteriorate, though, and dangers are not observed until later. Warnings are overlooked. What I feel is important or special, like that romance for the moment, but later has terrible consequences. How I feel like I want to just shout out my hatred toward another person. And this is what is commonly said. Get out your anger, you know, don't leave it inside you. Totally different than what the principles God gives us in the scriptures. You're supposed to keep it inside. You're supposed to work it through and find forgiveness and resolve that. But if you go by what you feel, it increases and brings about more dangers in life. And these values lead to destruction. But the point is, we're down already over the cliff and we don't know, I'm not aware of it. My family has totally fallen apart and I'm not talking about my own here family, but if it wasn't for God's grace, our family would just be horrible. I want to live in my family. Probably mostly because of me. I wouldn't want to live with me. You wouldn't want to be my friend either before I was saved. God had to do so many changes in my life. But sometimes these values around us are so brought into our life, we're not aware about it. Let me just uh, share a couple of things. Because what I believe is that the humanism of the world has actually crept into many of our lives. So let me give you the Ten Commandments, not. Okay? In other words, we're going one by one according to the Ten Commandments. But this is the way a lot of us live. Totally opposite than the Ten Commandments. You shall serve no one but yourself. And I do what I want. Number two, think much of the person in the mirror. I'm better than others. Three, don't let anyone speak bad of you. I'm much better than that. Four, life rotates around your schedule. I do what I want when I want. Now again, do you remember the God's commandment, right? Number one, you shall love God, you know, serve only God. Number four, you shall observe the Sabbath day. When you rotate your life around God's schedule, there's a big change. Number five, there is no need to respect your parents. They interfere with my life. Now these are, by the way, these are not things you should do, but these are the way most people think and operate. Let me continue. Number six, despise and hate those who interfere with your life. I hate those who trouble my plans. They feel it's okay to hate people, to murder in their minds. Number seven, find sexual favors wherever you can. I have sex with whom I want. This is our society. Take from others, just don't get caught. I deserve it more than they. Slander others to get what you want. I care about, number one, me. Live by your eyes, yes. Give me what I want. And so these commandments, you know, these inward ones, is, is, is the principles of humanism, whether it's secular or religious. And sometimes we call ourselves Christians, but inside we operate with these kind of values that are totally opposite than God's principles. And they lead us right to destruction and danger. And so if you look at our economy right now, why is there such uh, recklessness in what's happening? It, it's a marvel you stand back and say, you mean we're spending $700 billion and that's not enough? Oh, and everybody says we should spend in, you know, more billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. Why? Because many years ago, the government had a value. They said, we ought to give houses to everybody. And so it didn't matter if they could pay back loans or whether they even knew about how to pay back loans or take care of property. You would just have the value, yes, everybody should have a house. That sounds like a good value. But it's not based on principle of earner, a hard worker earns his labor. And they learn how to take care of their property. What happens in the end, they don't take care of the property. They, they willingly just give it up. They just quickly change jobs. And so it piles up over the many years. 
economy problems. It's because values don't match up with principles. And it happens in the same in the family. If we, at any point, adopt the point of where, for example, my value, I value myself, uh, despise and hate those who interfere with your life. And I'm willing to despise my spouse, for example. If, if I have that feeling, I'm, I have a right to that because my spouse is not respecting me. I have every right not to respect my spouse. If you adopt that humanistic value, what are you doing? You are saying, God, I don't care about your command to love and forgive one another. I care about myself. I want to hate someone. And you can't tell me not to. What will happen to a marriage like that? What will happen to the parent-child relationship, that friend-and-friend relationship? You'll destroy it. But we don't understand. When we're having relationships that are falling apart, it's because we've gone away from principles. We have false values in our life. We've adopted them. They look, they feel good, but they're reckless. And they destroy us in the end. And if you go through our government, I'll mention some things today as we look more carefully at Deuteronomy. Some of the issues that are brought up there is because we live by wrong values that look good, that feel good, but they don't match up with principle and therefore more harm and pain is brought into this world. Don't be afraid of God's truth. It's what saves and preserves. It's what helps us. And so many of us so shy about our Christian faith. Don't be shy because Jesus brings life. Jesus brings life. The whole book of Deuteronomy is all about what? It's about God bringing his people close to him. Why? Because God knows if you can get close to him, you will have life. You'll share his life. With him, his life brings blessing. And he wants to share that. So he brings his people close to him. Now, if the people sin, what happens? He has to distance himself from them or his judgment breaks out on them. That's the only option. So what he does is change the people's behavior so he can bring them close. He changes them by instituting different laws. Now, we're talking about the Old Covenant now, the book of Deuteronomy. Institute different kinds of laws so they would obey them, obey him, so that the way they lived their life with justice, with mercy, with understanding, with him, that he could actually accept them and be close to them and actually dwell right there in their midst. This is what God wanted. And when you live, he said, if you live, do all these things in this covenant, I will assure you, your life will be blessed beyond anyone in the whole world because you will be totally blessed. I mean, God said this to them. That is a wonderful promise. And so God instituted these different laws, commandments to help restrict the people the way they behave so God could live in their midst and bless them. We should not have any suspicion toward God's laws or commands as if they threaten us. As if they will steal away an important part of our life or something. Do you ever think God's laws will hold back a loving relationship? You're fooled. They will never. Do you ever think that God's ways will take something from your youth and your hope, your potential? Never. They won't. Instead, we shouldn't be threatened by God's rules. We should be able to learn from them. Now, I do want you to understand, as we look a little bit more, that in God's law is the revelation of his love. It's the bringing us together so we can be close to him. There is an old covenant, and we are studying the old covenant, the Deuteronomy. We understand that's different than our covenant. I understand that. I'll mention that a little bit more. But I just want you to hear the theme here. And this is the key point, which... It's an Old Testament theme, but it's also a very New Testament one. Uh, read together with me, please. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What do you find here? I am the Lord your God. You know this is repeated 21 times in the book of Leviticus. Hey, God really likes to think about that. I'm your God. He also says in eight times, uh, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Eight times it's said there in the book of Deuteronomy, including uh, in Deuteronomy 5, 6. I brought you out of that land. I delivered you from Egypt. You know, I went out of my way. I purchased you, redeemed you, and made you my own. 
Therefore we belong to God. There's that belonging. Now this concept of Redeemer, being purchased, is essential to understanding who we are as Christians, as God's people. They are so important. And when we understand that God's law enables his people to live in his presence and be blessed. In the Old Testament, it was true. God lived right there in the temple there, in the holy tabernacle in in the middle of uh, Israel. Today, of course, in the New Covenant, it's very different. The New Covenant, where, where do God lives? He lives right inside our lives. So, if God is going to bless us, what do you think needs to take place in our life? Those changes. What kind of changes? Well, do you think he'd want us to think that it's okay to hate others? No. He doesn't want that. How can he bless us when we have this kind of mentality? What if we think it's okay to disobey our parents? Or be bitter toward our parents. Well, no, again, you know, how can God get close to us? What if we have some type of immoral notions in our mind? Again, you see, how can God bless us? We have to understand that it's his laws, his truth that is conforming us. And largely all these laws point us to carrying out his mercy, his love, and his justice in our society. Laws themselves restrain the growth of evil. They also preserve what is good. Now, in our minds, there's two things that should be asking. Well, if God wants to live in our presence, right? You say, well, how do God's people live in God's presence? How do I get close to God? How can I grow spiritually? How can I get closer to Him? Most people don't think this way. They want God's blessings, but they're not focused on how it's associated with their life. They're asking questions like this. How can I not be so lonely? How can I find a peace of heart? Where can I find a job? How can I have a better marriage? They're thinking about these questions that are very personal. But they don't understand how the bottom set of questions is totally related to the top set. If you want blessing on all these other issues, you need to work with your relationship with God. Your relationship with God will bring blessing into the other parts of life. But in our life, in our society today, we're only thinking in the bottom part and never can associate that with God. So our humanistic society, and we feel, again, shy about calling ourselves a God's people, but we shouldn't because it's Him who's bringing those blessings into our lives. And this is what testimony we have. So let me go on and begin to discuss a little bit more from Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 21. We're going to discuss two different passages right next to each other. They're just like, if you read the whole section, there's a lot of laws, and these are just two sets of laws. The first one is on parental love, Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17. The second set is about rebellious children, Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. Now, I hope my children realize I have not chosen this passage. Someone else gave me this. I'm not talking about you guys. <laughs> You'll see why in a minute, especially it's not true. But anyways, each of these laws, and, and of course many more, address a problem we find in society today and what is to be done about it. Okay, This is important for us to realize. Ostentatiously, out on the outward, it looks like this doesn't really relate to my life at all. Well, that's because it's a law. It's a law because God was trying to shape the culture. He knew that when a problem came about, certain things would happen. And so he put laws into place that would kind of contain that evil from happening. Through each of these laws, we find God's compassion and desire to keep his people holy and blessed. Now, that's the key. If he can keep them holy, then he can live in their midst and he can bless them. But if he doesn't live in their midst because they're not holy, then they become less holy and God's judgment breaks out on them. Before we go on, let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for the power of your word. We want to thank you, first of all, that you really want us to know how much you love us to live in our midst to bless us beyond comprehension would you please help us oh lord to be totally touched by your word and your ways toward our life lord you have thought much more about these things than we ever have but would you help us to catch up with you lord on how we could live just and right lives in this world in jesus christ we pray Amen. Our societies that we'll be dealing with are different. The Hebrew culture was is an old one, agricultural culture. 
And so the way they handle some issues are, are different than the way perhaps we would handle them. These laws that we're talking about and what we'll hear in terms of the solutions are not necessarily solutions that we would use today in our society. And I am by no means is suggesting that we should do what is said in these verses. You need to understand that, so just don't think that I'm hinting at these things. I'll maybe suggest what I'm hinting at certain points, then you can also try to understand where I'm at. But the issues is trying to understand where God is at and how are we handling the issues that he thinks are so important. These things we are not doing very well in handling in our own society. Now the problems though are the same. Thousands of years have passed. The problems are the same. You know why? People are the same. People are the same. You can put on modern garb, open up your laptops, you know, talk on your phones, but we're still the same in the heart. So let's read this passage together from Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. It's talking about parental love. And let's make a few observations here about this passage. Well, firstly, this man had two wives, and he only loves one. Can you guess what's going to happen, right? Okay, so already a lot of problems that have, have developed. This is a law, right? When you go to the court, they have these laws, which might not have anything to do with most people's lives. But it only has to do with those people's lives who fall into a certain category. Today, in our culture, not many people have two wives. But there's many situations that are very parallel to this, as we'll look a little later. This is an inheritance problem. There's sons from both wives. In the Hebrew society, what they would do is they would pass the, the father would pass the inheritance on to his sons. His son, oldest son, would get a double portion. So if there were three sons, the inheritance would be passed into four parts. The oldest son would get the two parts. The other two sons would get one part. So they would get one quarter, one quarter, and the other would get two quarters. I think I got that right. Okay? A double portion. You can check my math later. I, you probably already have. There's a compassionate issue here, isn't there? Favor leads to neglect. We can see what the problem might be that develop here, that there needs to be a law here. There's God that has a concern about caring for everybody rightly. We understand what it means when he really favors the widow and he makes laws to be able to help take care of the widows in the land. In this uh, case, we'll look a little more carefully in a moment uh, what this means. But there's a sense of compassion, caring equally, because there might be a situation where a husband doesn't want to care for a certain wife or maybe the sons born from that wife. But no matter what, what this law is telling them, commanding the Israelite people, no matter what the father thinks or feels, okay, that's the value, right? I value my wife that I love. I value that son. That's a temporary, but there's a principle. And that principle set behind, you know, that you need to still give the double portion to the oldest son. Even if it's from that wife, you can't stand. You still need to do that. That is the law. So there's a principle, unbendable in that sense. You have to do it. I have seen so many fights come about so much hatred arise during passing out time, you know, inheritances and wills and things like this. You would think a family was so nice, but when they sit around a table and start discussing some of these issues, such hatred and competition and pride develop. It is unbelievable. It's like, where did all this happen from? It seems like there's a whole bunch of issues that develop here and let, let me just put them all together and, and kind of talk about them and reflect on them. There's the love for money. Somehow there must be behind of it a, a such, you know, I want that money. I need that portion or I need even more. 
You know, why am I not getting more? You know, all, all that that kind of sits behind. And I don't know if people are thinking about that all their lives or what. But it seems like at certain points, it becomes a very intense, horrible, horrible situation. Where here, their, their dad or mom just died. And here, the children are doing the, the worst thing in the world. Something that their parents would never, never want. And yet, it's happening. I don't know. Some of you, I shook your head. You knew what I was saying. I, I hope you never hear about those kind of things. I see parents stealing you know, money. Uh, and you know, thinking of sneaky ways of, I'm going to get a certain lawyer. They take it. And I've seen it happen. And so I see relatives never talk to relatives. And I said, well, can I talk to my relative? No, you can't talk to that relative. Well, it's still my relative. No, you can't. Hatred gets hold of people. The jealousy, the, the hatred, the money. And it's, it's important. I think perhaps we pride ourselves. I'm just kind of reflecting here. Why do people do that? I, it's, it's Their parents just died. Is it because of the money? Is it because we are so prideful and deceived? We think it has to do with how much uh, affection we have for our parents and we want more of that wealth. I don't know. But let me go back to the Hebrew society and just think I'll reflect a little bit more here. The eldest son would be responsible for most of the property, the land property. The land property is how they brought in money to take care of everybody. And so the eldest son, of course, would be caring for the wife. Uh, in our society, how do we handle this? Uh, our society, a lot, if the father died, the husband died, usually a lot of the property would go to the wife. Back then, it wouldn't. It would go to the son. The son would take care of the mother. That way, it works through. And so, in this sense, the, the law, what it's trying to do is protect that sense of favoritism. If in this case, you can see, well, if he didn't like his first wife that much that he got another wife, well, it's, it's perhaps he distanced himself from that first wife and he probably doesn't want to favor them and might not even see them at all. Wow. And so he only thinks about this other wife. And he might not, he might just give a little bit to that side of the family. But he might not give anything. Do you think he might not give anything? Is it possible he might not give anything? Yeah, if he really hated that wife, every memory of her is like full of bitterness totally ride her off you know people might be so cruel to do things like that would you you wouldn't do that would you but you know sometimes if we let that bitterness come up in our lives it begins to make us think wrongly it makes us to lose that sense of compassion and a sense of almost revenge you deserve nothing because you didn't treat me like anything that kind of thought God says you never let your hatred and bitterness, your greed, control your life. But he realizes that even in what his people might live that way. So he put some laws into place to protect them, to care for them, to make sure that wife, that those children are cared for. This is what God's concern is. Now, when you first open up to the verse, you say, well, what is it saying? It has nothing to do with my life. Let me reflect how it might have to do with your life. At least, if you had this, these three verses for your morning quiet time, what could you say? Can you understand problems with broken marriages? Today's society, there are many, many families that are broken apart. Some are married together, but they're distant in heart. But are there any laws that says that the father has to take the wealth and give it to his wife or take care of his family? I don't know if there's such laws. Are there? Even if there are such laws, you think those laws might be changing very quickly? No. Because the marriage and the whole sense of family is broken apart. There's expectation in the culture that a man would take care of his wife and children when he died. But today's society, there is so much... Uh, adultery there's so much divorce and separation you cannot at all be sure that the man or woman would be thinking about others rather than their own needs so the problem is still very real and laws will never never fully protect but they can help if they're 
carefully placed in a society. I think part of the whole issue is caring for our parents in their old age. You know, there should be that care for them, that willingness to watch over them, that whole sense of children taking care of maybe a a widowed mother or, or father. There has to be that place in our lives where we say, our parents are important, we'll respect them, no matter how old they are, no matter what it costs me. And put away some of the problems that we might have in terms of our bitterness, in our difficulties with our parents. For example, can I assume that 50% of you do not get along well with your parents? 50%, that's half of you. One, two, one, two, you know, count off in two. That 50, well, I don't know what that, what that might be. No, even my own children. No, but how well do you get along with your parents? Are you willing to have them move in with you if needed? Or are you going to send them off maybe to one of those faraway caretaker centers? Just so they're far away. I don't mind them the bill. All right? Okay, you, maybe you think that way. But is that what they really need? Is that they really need? Are you think, do you think that once they're not well, then all of a sudden they're going to get better? Or that your relationship will get better? Or all of a sudden you have an instant affection for them? I'd say No. In fact, it might be harder because it will put more stress on your life, your family, and your pocket. Where are we going to get that love and affection for our parents? When I was going through the Ten Commandments, not the uh, modern perspective of the Ten Commandments, it says, my parents interfere with my life. So you try, the modern concept is, try as much as possible to put your parents out of your life rather than in your life. God says, if you do that, your life is going to have a curse on it. But if you honor your parents, you will be blessed. You will live long. It's part of our relationship, the way God made us. And you say, well, God should have given me better parents. (laughs) He didn't give you better. He gave you the parents you have. And it's those parents where you need to see God's love powerful enough to come in your life and change you, break you down your pride, that you're willing even to love your parents, who might be all filled with all sorts of problems, perspectives that you don't share, You need to love them. And you won't instantly be able to do that. Some of you came from a different culture. They might be Buddhists or Hindus or uh, Muslim, whatever, uh, or secularists. It doesn't matter. Put that aside. Just love them as people that God made. They have cares. And you start doing simple things like being kind, wanting to talk to them, doing special things for them. We travel more than a thousand miles one way to see my family. Some people say, well, if I just travel two hours with one child in my car, how can you travel with eight children in your car for that long a time? Well, God gives us grace, but we learn to love our parents. Whatever it takes. It's one of those things that will come up in the end list that God says, I don't really care about who you work for. But I do care, how did you care for your parents? Did you really love them? You see how it's important? Behind the whole sense of the law is that sense of care, preserving relationships, taking care of people, and having that compassion. You might find a loophole in a law to get around that. But when you have inside you a heart of compassion for your parents, for siblings, for half brothers, half-sisters, you know, things like that. Then you put the money aside, the money's issue is not so big. In fact, maybe I won't get any. And that's, I have to reason in my own family. Maybe I won't get any. Maybe that's what happened. I've already in my own heart said, well, if that happens, then it happens. But to love my brothers, my parents, that is the most important thing. And so, the real heart that Christ wants is what? heart of compassion and care and mercy for your family and those around you. And if you have that kind of sense of love within you, then you don't need those outside laws. Those are for desperate people. Those are people that are really not listening to God. Do you need to reconcile with your parents? Do you need to start loving them practically in different ways? Take those steps. Parental love work on relationships now while they're living.
That's God's love is always sufficient for those impossible situations that we face today. Let me go on one more. Rebellious children. Let's read this together. Verses 18 to 21. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. Notice, remove the evil from your midst. You know, God wants a holy people. He has some concerns. Let's make some observations here. Well, you should notice right here, first of all, stubborn and rebellious son. The word stubborn comes from a Hebrew word that's focusing a lot on that stubborn sense of attitude. Just unwilling to bend in that attitude. The rebellious is more in actions. Actual things they, they do or say. Defiant is a good word that uh, might be uh, well describing this type of son. We notice, yeah, it's talking about sons here particularly. How about daughters? Would you realize that this really doesn't happen too much with daughters? It really does happen though with sons. Very rare, actually. The daughters are, are so extreme and rebellious like that. I, maybe they're more inward and just keep it to themselves. But when we talk about what happens in our societies, we find that it's a very difficult situation. What's a pro- parent's problem? They will not obey the father or mother. That is a big problem. Actually, we hear it a lot in our parenting classes. My child won't hear. Listen to me. And what do we say? We say, if you cannot get your son or daughter even to listen to you at this stage... You're going to be in terrible straits when it comes to their teenage years. We're going to be bigger than you. You'll be looking up to them. (laughs) And they'll say, I don't want to. So what should you do? They tried everything. Well, these parents, what did they do? They chastised them. They told them to obey. They, They said, you know, they won't listen to them. What's the parents going to do? We have a, a number of, in our own society, a number of organizations you can call hotline and uh, get the police out and you can get the courts involved very quickly, which, which is a t- horrible thing in, in my eyes. But it, it is a real problem. It's a real problem. What if the children don't obey? And what happens is not just a, a family issue, of course. If a child doesn't obey at home, once he gets his wings, he's out in the society, he's going to be a defiant child and will bring that same attitude Same selfishness wherever he goes. The solution here is quite evident. What do you do? Well, he's committing crimes. Isolate him through death. Kill him. The parents take him, bring before the elders of the city, say, you guys know how terrible this son of ours is. We can't handle him. You don't have police. Of course, back then they didn't have police. They didn't have courts. They don't have prisons. What are you going to do? The only way to isolate is just eliminate him. And that's what they would do. Take them outside the city. All the men, you're 8, 12 or over, would join in, take some stones, stone him. Is that too severe? Ooh, this goes against my feelings. Yeah, I, I understand. It's pretty hard. Maybe you think even harsh. But the advantage here, two things we see right here, right? You should remove evil so God can be there and bring blessing. Uh, second of all, all Israel hear it and there will be more fear that Wow, if I'm like this and I don't change, I might run into a situation like that. I'm going to stop being so boisterous or rebellious. So there might be change. I mean, if you're a 12-year-old and you see that 16-year-old, that you have to take that stone. In in the Hebrew society, 12-year-old, you became a man. You would take that stone, throw it at that 16-year-old. You say, wow, I'm going to be a little better tomorrow. And, uh, you know, there's that lesson that's learned. I know there are studies out there that say deterrence does not work. I will say that those studies go clearly against what God says, where deterrence does work. It's not totally effective, but it is effective, and God says it's effective. So be careful of those studies that you hear in deterrence. A lot of those studies that talk about causing fear in others that they will not also imitate uh, wrong behavior, they have biases in the reports. Anyways, we're just taking a quick look. Uh, we saw that the, the sons were rebellious, 
uh, they'd be uh, gluttons. They just wanted to eat more. Uh, they they were drink, drinking. They took drugs. And doesn't that sound like our society today? What's happening today? Let's think about it in our own context here. Juvenile courts handled 1.6 million delinquency cases in 2000, 43% higher than the levels of caseloads in 1985. Since 1960, the juvenile court caseload increased over 400%, from 1,100 delinquency cases on a given day in 1960 to 4,500 in 2000. Whatever our society is doing about juvenile delinquents is inadequate, totally inadequate. There's a number of things that are not being said and not being rightly understood. Now, we might say killing them is way beyond what we should be doing. Now, because of our wealth in our nation we and the strong materials we have, we can have prisons, we can have police, we can actually feed prisoners. Uh, we, we actually we give them televisions, we, we, we give them weight rooms, uh, we, we give them a whole lot more than I have. So we've gone too far, haven't we? Well, the cost of U.S. juvenile crime, the victim cost 62000 to 250000 Criminal justice. In other words, you have to bring them to courts. You have to watch over them and put certain uh, guards on them. Twenty-one to eighty-four thousand. Uh, so eighty-three to three hundred thirty-five thousand dollars for uh, each crime. What is God trying to do in this law? This is not working. By the way, it only works if you have a lot of money that you can cover up the real issues. The problem is how we're trying to solve this issue is not really working. Because the courts can't handle them quick enough, so they're still out. They get released real early, or they're in, but they get kicked out of the prisons real quick. They're back to repeat crime, and it just builds up a whole same process. Don't you think it, God's way is very effective? Effective if one, it would be effective, right? They are so isolated that they're not going to get someone else involved. Second of all, it will deter others from going in the same pathway. It might be harsh. But one of the stories, you know, I ran up again and again uh, when I was in India this time was that many, many poor kids, orphans or parents don't want them. They just get rid of them on the street from, you know, very little up. There's someone comes by and gets them hooked on drugs of some sort. So these guys have all these kids under them addicted to drugs, you know, whether in their train stations, doing all these things, feeding their habits, always passing the money on to them. That guy, does he deserve to live? Does he? But you see, if you have the value of life, what you think is life, where we should never kill anyone, which is what our society is basically at today, except it's lopsided. They're willing to kill the ones aren't yet born. They're willing to kill those who can't make money anymore for the government. Well, okay. They're willing to do that, but they're not willing to kill the ones who actually are hurting people, raping people, murdering people, stealing from people, bringing anguish and pain into families, why not? What is the problem? The values are upside down. Is there real justice? If there was real justice, there should be pain given, at least as a minimum, to these ones who are bringing pain to others. What I understand, there's none of that being happened. But all their care has taken place. There used to be workhouses where they could actually work hard physical labor. They don't do that anymore. You just give them money. They're not working at all. There's something very wrong, and it's causing a lot of problems in our society. Uh, the government, and the reason a, a lot of this is uh, being worsened is because of the way of the sociologists who work in the government shape the way the government responds and acts. Let me just read this a little bit long, but I'll read it for you. Mounting social science... Research confirms what most Americans already know. The breakdown of the family contributes significantly to many of the society's ills, including poverty, crime, drug addiction, school dropout rates, and poor health. From this same research, Americans also are learning that when fathers are absent from their families, the rate of juvenile delinquency rises dramatically. Americans are less likely to know that the federal and state juvenile correction systems generally act as if this significant relationship between family breakdown and juvenile crime did not exist. As if, in other words, the absence of fathers and married parents in a juvenile delinquent's life had no effect on the incident of juvenile crime. So all their methods of solutions have nothing to do with strengthening families. 
In fact, if anything, the government is anti-family right now, anti-marriage, increasing divorce, making it easier to separate, easier to have problems in the marriage. And so there's more delinquents coming out. You're not solving and helping the delinquents. You're actually creating more delinquents by aiding the fragile nature of family rather than strengthening it. So there's problems here. Problems. And this is done by the Heritage uh, Foundation. So, I mean, you can see the stats here. One juvenile delinquent came from a 2% two-parent family. 4.8 came from married but currently separated. 12.4 came from single parent or divorce. 22 came from single parent never married. But this is the life that's being encouraged today. And they say it doesn't hurt. It doesn't matter if you marry. It does matter. It does matter. What are you doing to the society? What are you doing to the children that come from your lives? So we have a number of issues. You know, the control of juvenile delinquents. How do you care for them once they've done wrong? The cost of isolation, retraining, which, of course, hardly ever works. Justice. You know, why are you only concerned about the criminal and not the ones who suffer? Why? Demanding effective treatment that considers the parents? Well, what about the parents? What about the parents? They're not taking that into consideration. And what we find here is that there's compassion for the wrong people. Compassion not for the ones who are suffering, but compassion for the criminals, which should be judged. I'm not saying again that we need to step into killing them. But the point, there's a number of issues we need to deal with that aren't being dealt with that could be dealt with much more. Isolation is effective. But can we handle it? How are we going to handle it? My last concern I'll bring up is my... Why is it that so many delinquents are around? Why is it that parents nowadays can't have their children obey them? Your child's only one year old and they don't obey? Two years old? Three years old? How come? At least these parents were chastising their parents. In today's philosophy, you're not supposed to spank your child. You're not supposed to discipline them. In some societies, it's illegal now. What are they creating? You're creating a horror, a future horror of children who have never learned to obey and respect authority. A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he regards re- but he who regards reproof is prudent. Stern discipline is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. Understanding is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Let me just summarize with some applications to our own life. Society will have juvenile delinquents. We need to learn how to handle them properly. Must correct delinquents with, but considering the harm, the cost, the repeated offenses. Keep those things in mind. The government should not exasperate the situation by not strengthening the family. And parents need to consistently discipline their children. In love, with motivation of caring for them and training them. Not just so you have a quiet home, but because you love them. That's the right context that children learn about discipline. Revival is that interchange of heart that brings long-lasting change on a society because of the way we begin to institute our lives. We care about our own children, therefore we bring them uprightly. We discipline them. We love them. We give them and provide for them. This is a commitment in our own lives. But in summary, we must insist our values match life principles. Otherwise, you are stepping over that cliff into danger zone. Where you do not have compassion for the right people, you do not love your parents, where you do not discipline your children, where you are just too intent on your own life and not caring about others around you, you are going against God's love principles that he set up in the new covenant to love one another, to train your children, to love your spouse. We're to love God's truth. It's the path of life. Don't doubt God's truth. Respect it. You might not understand it. That's okay. But purposely step closer to God, asking Him to teach you, to train you in life so that you can be a person who carries out his life in the right way. Strive to have a wonderful marriage. You have a wonderful marriage 
It solves so many difficulties that many people have in this society. Consistently discipline your children. I hope from some of these concepts that we've learned is that you'll see that there's some heart changes that are really necessary. Laws, you can always get around, can't you? If you really want. But if you find your heart not having you do what you should be doing, look to God, go back and seek revival from Him. Seek that He would change your heart, that your values would begin to match up with His values. Because His values are always right along those life principles that He's embedded in our society. It's from this a society will grow strong. Our families will grow strong. Our lives will grow strong. God really wants to bless us. And the way he blesses us is by living in our midst. If we have those wrong values, we have our wrong choices. Won't you choose to be his person, his child? And open your heart wide for him. Don't doubt his work in your life. Open up wide. Can you all put your arms out wide? Come on. Put your arms out wide. Welcome him into your life. Well, some people are like this. I don't know if God's going to take the hint. I hope not. I hope your heart's like this. That we really say, God, I want you to come in my life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you, Father. Maybe stretching out our hands is a little bit corny. But Lord, stretching our hearts is everything real and true and good. We need you to come close to us, Lord. There is so much wrong in us, Lord. Those values that we just picked up from the world. And our garments are dirty. Our hearts are not passionate about you anymore. We're about serving others. We're willing to put most of our time on our lives. On the guy in the mirror. Lord, please help us to repent to be a holy people that you would delight to live in our midst bless and help us we pray we all the more value your love and your work in our lives in our families in our hearts in our congregation in Christ we pray Amen this message concludes we welcome you www.foundationsforfreedom.net to find many, many different articles topically, biblically, and otherwise listed.